Welcome to the Yaruki Zero Games Podcast, Episode 15, The Big Picture. Since from podcasting has now stretched out to half a year, but I haven't totally pod faded, not yet, anyways. Uh, by way of explanation slash apology, the long delay had a lot to do with, uh, well, my apathy played into it quite a bit, but it was also in part because I got a new job in the video game industry, if not a spectacular one, and that's eaten up quite a bit of my time all of a sudden compared to being a freelancer. Uh, on top of that, I was uh, sick for the better part of a month, and I've had kind of sustained allergies to the point where I basically take a 24-hour Claritin every day, and if I don't, I start coughing a lot. Uh, the first weekend of June, I did indeed go to Dallas, Texas to be guest of honor at Acon. Uh, it was a really fun experience. I don't have quite as much to report about that as I would like on account of, uh, amongst other things, the aforementioned illness that kept me from participating as much as I wanted to, but I did get to um, meet Malcolm Harris of Channel M, uh, Jonathan Thompson from Battlefield Press, and I did like a grand total of like seven panels, on, mostly on gaming, but also one or two on other topics. And you know, although you know, going on forums like RPGNet and Story Games, I often feel like I don't have all that much to offer to the conversation a lot of the time. Uh, for whatever reason, the, the crowd at Akon, to them, a lot of the stuff I had to say was rather novel, and I think I managed to introduce a few people t- to some uh, more obscure indie games that they might not have otherwise heard of, including but not limited to Kagematsu. Uh, our plans to have stuff to sell at the con kind of completely fell through, uh, some of it was bad planning, and some of it was bad luck. But uh, we did a, we did have an exhibit hall table, which is different from a dealer's room table at Acon, at least. And we got to show off made RPG to a lot of people and that sort of thing. And you know, people were pretty interested. And made RPG is great for doing mini demos at cons because you just say, you know, do you have five minutes? Let's make let's roll you up a character and see what you get. And that a lot of the time is enough to sell people on it. So. Not for the first time, it's unfortunate we didn't have copies. As for the feature of this podcast, uh, I have at least one interview slated coming up hopefully soon, and I I don't want to brag about it and jinx it or anything, Uh, so I'll talk more about that as it comes up. Um, Lately, it seems like I've had a lot of new and interesting games to digest, although it's been hard to find time to play, even with 
uh, two gaming groups going, but there's a good chance I'm going to talk about those. I also uh, finally was able to do some playtesting on Slime Story, which I might want to talk about on the podcast. So things have been really uh, interesting lately, Um, but now I want to get into the actual topic of this podcast. Uh, The title of it is The Big Picture. I don't mean this in in terms of RPGs in the marketplace, and uh, that's something for someone smarter than me to talk about, I think, or at least more knowledgeable about such things. this episode is going to be some thoughts about what RPGs actually are. And, you know, I, I, I think I've said before that, you know, I'm not big on prescriptive definitions. So, you know, if someone holds up a book to me and says, this is an RPG, I'm basically going to take their word for it. I'm not going to try to tell people that the thing they're calling an RPG isn't. But, uh,. There are certain things about RPGs that I think are really interesting that I want to try to kind of unpack. Um, other people may well have uh, said them before, but and if so, you're going to hear them again, unless you stop this MP3 file. But I do hope you will uh, give me a chance and listen to this. I did a little bit of an experiment with this episode. I recently, well, it's been a little while now, I bought a uh, portable digital recorder. If you're curious, on the back it says it's a Sony ICD-PX820, whatever that means. Uh, so the of the three parts that come after the introduction to this podcast, I recorded the first two on said recorder, albeit using the uh, same headset microphone I usually use for my podcasts. Uh, I think the the quality came out pretty good, and I may well be using this thing for uh, in-person interviews in the near future, but we'll see. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the main topic. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about is what I call text versus play. Now, uh, this is kind of a thing that RPGs are different from basically any other kind of tabletop game in that uh, the game that you play at the table and the game that's kind of contained in the text, the rulebook that you buy, are not quite the same. Now, uh, not being all that much into uh, card and board games and whatnot, I don't know, I'm not going to try to speak authoritatively on that. But uh, it seems to me that you know the the rules of a uh, non-RPG tabletop game are much more straightforward in terms of how they tell you what you're going to do when you sit down to play the game. Uh, you're not typically being creative directly. You're being creative in terms of kind of how you engage the game within the context of the things that it allows you to do. Whereas role-playing games are quite different. Uh, a good, uh, if by today's standards, kind of almost extreme example of this is is old-school Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, from what I've read about it, from what I understand, a big portion of the gameplay basically comes from an informal structure that the Dungeon Master is creating. The Dungeons & Dragons game that got published what kind of grew out of stuff that you know Dave Arneson was doing very informally with Blackmore and even then the 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 rules that actually got published didn't really convey the full experience at all you know they they covered uh combat and what spells you could cast and uh generating ability scores and certain things like that 
uh, in, a, in a reasonable amount of detail, actually less than we have today, and to the point where people had to kind of puzzle it out on their own, because it was kind of complete by today's standards, and that's where we have uh, stuff like the Perrin Conventions, where uh, basically uh, people had to kind of work out their own house rules to figure out how things work, and the Perrin Conventions in particular was one set of rules to kind of uh, make the original Dungeons and Dragons more complete and playable, and that that got passed around so that a lot of people were playing it with that version. But uh, having seen the parent conventions posted online myself, you know, even those don't real really deal with a lot of the things that uh, the dungeon master would typically deal with informally. So, kind of uh, the archetypal thing example of this informal structure that I keep talking about is you know you have your adventurers walking down a corridor in the dungeon and there's traps that they need to be able to find in order to you know survive and not get mutilated horribly by the traps especially since traps back then tended to kill characters outright uh, which is why you would run into things like you know uh, Dungeons and Dragons player characters running around with stuff like 10 foot poles that would they would kind of run along the floor in order to detect trap doors and things like that. So uh, there wasn't the kind of reliance on skill checks and things like that that we, you see in more recent games because those things hadn't been invented yet. And the way that you uh, played the game of finding traps and such was basically that you did stuff in the game that would convince the dungeon master that you were your character was in fact taking proper precautions in order to succeed and along with that you know the the dm might you know eyeball your character's stats to get a general idea of how competent he was at things but the rules really didn't help you with that kind of thing uh now if we move forward a bit into what is now thought of as kind of the quote-unquote traditional mode of rpg play there's still kind of a need for the game master to uh, provide some kind of informal structure. There's less of it uh, because you know the the rules of RPGs in general kind of have changed to let you do more things with the rules. So we have things like uh, skill checks and attribute checks. So instead of uh, trying to convince the the DM that your character is doing stuff to spot stuff, you can say, well, you know, I have like plus twelve to my perception skills, so I'm going to roll and get a good result, and then I can spot stuff. And, you know, today, with the uh, old-school renaissance, we kind of understand the old-school style better than we used to, in a lot of ways. Uh, those of us who, like, weren't there. But uh, among the people who are into the more old-school games, there's kind of this pushback against the sort of skill-check paradigm in that, you know, it, it's the thing that, uh, you know, rolling the dice kind of replaces something that previously was uh, something where you kind of had to use your brain but you know the, the flip side of that is that uh, you kind of wind up you can potentially wind up with a sort of uh, analog version of what in point and click adventure games they call pixel bitching where you know the, the, the GM has something that he wants you to do to solve a puzzle and it's obscure to the point where you you want the the game kind of grinds to a halt because you're waiting for someone to stumble across the thing to try that uh, the GM wants you to try, and I run across that in video games and I detest it, and I'm getting 
a little away from the original point, so I'll stop that line. The uh, the thing with the the sort of traditional style of role playing games is that although the role of the rules has expanded somewhat, we still see a lot of areas that are potentially very important to what goes on in the role playing game that are basically left to the game master to create some kind of structure without using the rules particularly or without necessarily using the rules primarily I guess would be the way to put it because you know an awful lot of games uh, will put you know several different variations on different ways to do attribute checks and you have or skill checks you know you have opposed and unopposed and sometimes stuff like cooperative checks and uh, more involved stuff where, with uh, you know trying to do basically stuff stuff like skill challenges in D and D forty I guess would be the way to put it stuff where you're trying to that adds a little bit more mechanical complexity than simply doing one roll and find, checking what result you get but in and of themselves those things don't necessarily give you as the GM the ability to kind of wield them without being you know moment to moment creative. Uh, so it took me a second to think of an example, but, uh, for example, uh, suppose that you're in some kind of fantasy game and your character wants to build a castle, you know, he's amassed all this money and such to do that, and you're ready to start building a castle, what do you do? Well, uh, in some versions of D&D, there are actually rules for that, in fact, uh, in basic D&D, which was in the, uh, mid to late 80s, I want to say, I have to look it up to be sure, uh, the basic D&D had to basically, you know, if you were a fighter, it was basically one of the things you get as you level up is your own, like, castle keep and soldiers serving you. Whereas, uh, you look at, like, uh, say D&D 3rd edition and 4th edition, the, the, the concept of, uh, player characters having something like a castle really disappeared. And if you really wanted to do that, the you know, the GM, or Dungeon Master, since we're talking about D&D, would basically have to wing it and tell you to, you know, you're spending money and you're, you say, making diplomacy checks with the workmen at, that you're hiring and things like that. And, I don't know, maybe throw in some uh, fights with monsters that are interrupting the construction and things like that if you want to make it extra interesting. But it would ultimately come down to the... Uh, DM finding on his or her own creative ways to uh, you make that uh, interesting enough to be challenging in the course of playing the game to sort of make it into a kind of gameplay even if it's not a kind of gameplay that's particularly uh, to make it into kind of gameplay even if it's not a kind of gameplay that's actually uh, spelled out in the rules of the game. Now, I have played with some really amazing game masters in the time that I've been in this hobby. Uh, some of my friends from high school, uh, my brother-in-law, they're all really good at it. And my question, because it's really hard to get a sense of what's going on in the hobby overall, is are you know the, those kinds of skilled game masters really all that common? I'm not saying they're not, but you know I I feel like uh, among my gaming group, 
the main group that I play with, that's the doing that kind of thing well is something is the main thing really that we've struggled with over the years. And that's a big part of why uh, the uh, kind of indie RPGs, the more structured RPGs, have had a lot of appeal for me. Because, you know, if I'm running the game, then I can focus on, you know, portraying the, portraying the non-player character as well and making the story interesting where I'm called on to do that and things like that. And I don't have to worry so much about uh, keeping the overall structure of the thing to be entertaining. Now, needless to say, I'm not suggesting that everyone should play that way by any means. You know, none of this is one-size-fits-all, of course, but I think it's important to think about that there's kind of this trade-off between flexibility and sort of ease of use in terms of the structure of gameplay, I guess would be the way to put it. Your gameplay in role-playing games is ultimately your own, all the time, of course, but some games make it more a matter of sort of giving you tools that you can use to put together your gameplay, whereas others give you the gameplay with spaces for creative input. So uh, the second thing that I want to talk about is artists versus consumers. This is kind of the question of whether uh, people who play role-playing games are consuming a product or whether they're, you know, creating something original. Now, I don't really mean this in the sense of, you know, the argument that uh, Roger Ebert unwittingly got himself into over whether games can be art. To me, the answer is very clearly yes, and any inter- any substantial discussion that's to be had is more along the lines of, you know, how games can be art, whether, uh, why it is that not as many of them are art as there could be, and things like that. But um, I'm more talking about artists in, but uh, I'm talking about art more, artists, quote-unquote, more in the sense of uh, people who are doing something creative versus people who aren't. Depending on how philosophical you want to be about it, there's kind of a point where it becomes hard to say that any game isn't creative because, you know, in a sense, you know, there's creativity behind, you know, the moves you make when you're playing chess, but that's that's a definition of creativity that isn't really applicable to what I'm talking about per se. So, you know, when when it comes to uh, whether people playing RPGs or artists versus consumers, you know, I, I, there are people you'll run across online who will say basically that they don't spend one dime on their gaming, or at least, you know, they don't anymore. They have their copy of whatever game it was that they found that was perfect for them, and basically everything they do now is non-commercial. It's them being creative, coming up with their own, you know, characters and adventures and settings, and all of that kind of thing without uh, engaging the industry of role-playing games in any meaningful way. Now, I suspect that uh, the people who are playing role-playing games that way are by far the exception to the rule, and the majority of gamers do some degree of uh, consumption, some some amount of you know purchasing goes into their gaming on a semi-regular basis. I don't think that... Uh, Pure, uh, purely commercial, purely uh, consumerist gaming is really possible with role-playing games. 
if you are playing the current version of D and D and you're you know buying lots of supplements and only playing uh, pre-made adventure scenarios or adventure modules would be the D and D term. That's getting a lot closer than most games would allow you to get. But you know you're still uh, putting a lot of creative stuff into the game. Uh, at the very least, you have to create your own characters, your own original characters when you start playing the game. But it seems to me that uh, the ability to offer that kind of sort of uh, comprehensive commercial experience really depends on the publisher's uh, monetary resources, I guess would be the way to put it. Uh, adventure modules aren't very profitable to begin with, and so there are relatively few publishers that can really uh, afford to put them out. And certainly, you know, Wizards of the Coast uh, puts them out and has kind of now made them sort of uh, a little bit more of a luxury item, I guess. They they come with you know maps and things like that that are that are very nice, you know, full color maps that you fold out and all that kind of thing. And, you know, after that, you have uh, White Wolf, which has gotten into uh, putting out adventures as inexpensive PDFs, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, they're something that you're only going to use once, uh, generally speaking. Now, uh, this is a factor that makes life a little bit difficult for anyone who wants to uh, make role-playing games more of a commercial enterprise, in that you know it's a very strong part of the culture, and uh, to a lesser extent, uh, the the nature of the games as they are today, that a, a significant portion of what goes into the activity necessarily is you know homemade. I don't think anyone has really fully succeeded at kind of creating a way to have a role playing game with serial content that can be really integrated into an ongoing game without uh, the game master or whoever having to you know make significant changes though uh, some of that comes to the fact that uh, writing good adventures is you know a, a real skill that I think uh, is underdeveloped among uh, gamers and game designers alike you know there's legendary stuff like the uh, masks of Yarlathotep but there's also the uh, D&D Adventure Path modules, which I've kind of heard a lot of mixed stuff about, that they tend to be uh, I variously overly simplistic kind of series of combat encounters or uh, overly railroady or things like that. So, you know, even with the... Uh, even when we're talking about Wizards of the Coast, the company that has the most financial resources of anyone in this industry, there's still kind of uh, apparently in a lot of people's eyes falling short in terms of putting together good adventures for people to use. Now when we get into the more structured RPGs that I was talking about earlier, the uh, quote-unquote indie RPGs, we wind up with a lot of stuff where uh, they don't, they, the individual games don't typically have quite as much staying power necessarily. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the input that the players have into the game tends to be primarily creative in nature. So, you know, where D&D lets you get distracted by uh, figuring out, you know, moves on the combat grid and things like that, uh, if you're playing, you know, primetime adventures or fiasco or something like that, you know, what you're doing in the game has a lot more to do with uh, putting, you know, ideas and 
events and so forth into the uh, the ongoing story. And now that I think about it some more, I think that that, in a way, makes those games, even though you know the uh, the stuff you work with the game is becomes kind of fluffier and more freeform in some ways. Uh, it becomes more like a card game or a board game in the sense that it's less suitable to being an ongoing activity. It becomes more something you pull out multiple times and you get different variations each time. Which is not to say that it doesn't happen with traditional RPGs, but you know, it, it seems to me that if you're playing uh, you know, Fiasco or primetime adventures or what have you the the people who you're playing with and what kind of mood they're in influences it in the same way as with say uh the big idea that one game from uh cheap ass games or i guess apples to apples things like that uh but to get back onto the actual topic uh in a sense we have a type of game where uh, role-playing games in general we have a type of game where consumption is sort of a shortcut so you know for example if i say don't have time to put together an, an original adventure to play with my friends for D, i can just you know buy an adventure module and you know it, it may take some time to get familiar with it and to uh maybe customize it a little bit but that's saving me some work and i you know i have a hard time thinking of that as a bad thing you know they People lead really busy lives these days, and it takes time to uh, do that sort of thing. You know, it, it's a common theme on the uh, message boards I frequent that you know the the guys who are married and have kids say, "Well, you know, I only have a few hours to spare. I, I just barely can make time to you know get together with my gaming group once a month. I don't need these big complicated rules that are going to take me a long time to figure out." And, you know, in a similar way with a uh, structured game, the entire game itself can be kind of a shortcut. So, you know, if I want to do a uh, Starship Troopers type of game, I, you know, I, I might pick a, you know, I might put something together with GURPS or some other system. But then, you know, I have the option also now of picking up 316 Carnage Amongst the Stars. And it's basically, you know, here's a game I read through it in an hour or two and I can put together the thing and do the type of adventure that I want with that without putting having to put very much thought into it. Uh, well, 316 in particular, one of the great things about it is that it uh, requires very little planning or thought on the uh, Game Master's part. Anyway, uh, that brings us to the third and final topic I want to talk about, which is rules versus not rules. The idea that I'm trying to get at here is that uh, in a role-playing game, when you approach the book, there are portions of the experience that are determined by things that are rules, and there are portions that are from things that aren't rules. Now, I've talked a bit about, you know, informal structure in the first part of this podcast and things like that. Uh, I think that there are also a lot of other factors that uh, can contribute to the overall experience. So... For example, there are things like the overall color and the setting. There's the group's, uh, you know, social contract and general tone and approach to things. And in some cases, there are things that the rules don't cover. Where there are cases where what the rules don't cover is as important to the effect it has on the game as what the rules do cover. 
Now, uh, my best example for all of the above uh, happens to be a Japanese game yet again, uh, specifically Yuyake Koyake, which is uh, by the same designer as uh, Made RPG Ryokamiya. Uh, and I've, I've talked about this game before. It's a l wonderful game. Uh, it is its subtitle is Hononbono Ataka Role Playing, so basically heartwarming role playing. And the concept of it is, you know, you play these creatures called henge that are kind of animals with a little bit of magical power, just a little bit, including the ability to temporarily take on human form. And they live in this this picturesque town in rural Japan, and they just kind of help out ordinary people with ordinary problems. So here we have something that's kind of uh, novel, relatively speaking, in the world of role-playing games. Here we have a designer who's trying to create a game that's heartwarming, that's about helping people with little to no violence. Now, uh, there are several factors within the rules that are very important to it achieving this, but there are also several factors that fall outside of the rules per se. So, uh, for example, the game has uh, relationship mechanics that are very, very key to how you play the game, because basically you have to build up relationships with other characters in order to get the points of uh, what are called wonder and feelings that what you let your character do basically anything at all you want to do in the game. You have to spend wonder points on to be able to use your character's special powers, and you have to spend uh, points of feelings to be able to do uh, checks. Basi basically, since it's a resource game, resource-based game, the game's equivalent of, you know, making a check and rolling dice. And that is interesting in and of itself, in just on the fact that it is taking something that in a traditional game basically is going to be handled uh, as an informal element, you know, if you, if you want to form a relationship with an NPC in a traditional RPG, you know, you roleplay it and the GM tells you how the NPC reacts and that sort of thing. I mean, well, you know, there were games with uh, you know, D and D had rules for relations to hirelings and things like that in very specific ways. But uh, I'm digressing yet again. Um, with the uh, attempt to create this heartwarming feel, the, uh, the the setting, the feel of the game is very important too, because you know you're in this little town and you know it's just it's this very idealized idyllic location and you know everything about the text the illustrations all of that does a beautiful job of reinforcing that feel you know I read the uh, foreword to the book and I feel like I'm reading some poetry that my grandpa wrote that's the kind of feel it has this very beautiful storybook feel to some of the better parts of the text now uh, on the other hand uh, what is absent from the rules can be very, very important. You know, in in Taoism, the Chinese philosophy, there's this concept called the empty vessel. It's kind of the idea that you know, you if you have a jug, you know, it, it's the empty space inside the jug that lets you carry the water around. So what's not there is just as important as what is there. So the example of this in Yuyake Koyake is the combat rules or lack thereof. Early on in the development of Yuyake Koyake, uh, Kamiya did try to put uh, some kind of combat rules with more of a fairy tale thing, where you could, you know, get something to give you a very considerable advantage. But he eventually kind of scrapped that, and what's in the what's in the final version of the game is basically, you know, the the possibility of getting into a physical confrontation is there, but the game really makes it utterly unsatisfying to do you know it's 
it kind of says, okay, you know, you make an opposed check, and if you really want to, you can turn it into a bidding war. Oh, and it, if you, you know, it, it can damage your relationship with the town. And, you know, you compare that to, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, where they make combat into kind of this really interesting, engaging mini game, and you know that the saying about how you know when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail comes to mind. So as an aside, if you're wondering why I'm such a fan of Ryokamiya and his games, well, so many of them have given me such amazing lessons about how RPGs can be designed. Now, the flip side of this is something that uh, Guy Shalev has blogged about quite a bit, which he calls blinders. And this is an idea he's come up with, which is basically that, you know, when you're uh, testing a role-playing game, you need to kind of think about what you're testing, and kind of uh, the the rules need to be able to work sort of in isolation, without all of that other stuff affecting it. And in a way, I think this kind of reinforces rather than contradicts what I've been saying, just because, you know, the the process of playtesting can be greatly influenced by all of these other factors with you know, you know the color, the setting, the attitude you approach the game with. You know, certainly if you're playing say Monopoly, the the you know the way that the attitude you take towards the game has a big effect on what it feels like to play it and the kind of experience that it produces. So, you know, if you're playing very casually with your friends, that's going to be very different if you're playing a very kind of cutthroat style. But you can bet when they were trying to develop a new game that was, you know, building off of the Landlord's game that came before it, uh, they really had to kind of make sure that the economy, the numbers behind it, really worked. Now, how one goes about isolating these things is something that I'm going to have to sit down and grapple with myself, and if you want to look into that more, I suggest you can go ahead and look at Guy's blog post, which I am, of course, going to link to in the show notes, so hopefully that'll make Guy happy. In any case, I think that's about all I have to say on these topics for now. Plus, it's getting late, and if I don't finish this podcast up tonight, I'm not going to be able to touch it again until Saturday at the very earliest. So I'm going to uh, call it a day here, uh, even at the cost of not having it edited quite as well as I might like to normally. In any case, uh, if you're still listening to this, thank you for putting up with my ramblings, and I hope to be heard by you again soon, for real this time. <laughs>